take that same toolkit into Sweep of Stars, which is the, the whole power of satire, for example. The comedians are able to tell truths to power in ways that uh, bring people along. So like with uh, Pit My Airship, I can have hard conversations about redlining and over-policing and all these other hard conversations, uh, but because I use humor to do it, I bring people along for, for the ride. Yeah. In Sweep of Stars, I was just like, because I did say, you know, Indianapolis is America in microcosm. So I wanted to be as hyper-local as possible yeah. and hyper-specific as possible because whatever's playing out here is playing out in the rest of the country, whether we realize it or not. You're listening to best-selling science fiction writer, fantasy writer, Afrofuturist writer, Maurice Broadus, my guest on this episode of Michael Loves Indie. <laughs> Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indie. I'm so excited to share this conversation with the author Maurice Broadus. Maurice is based here in Indianapolis, and he's become very well-known across genres like science fiction, Afrofuturism, fantasy, and horror. And he released his latest Sweep of Stars within the last couple of months. It is the first novel in a trilogy called the Astra Black Trilogy. To great reviews um, in national media, and I'm glad that I took two weeks to read the book before I sat down with Maurice because it is a great book. It's a great story. And it's whether you're a hardcore science fiction fan or more casual science fiction fan as I am, it's fantastic. It takes place in many different worlds, but Indianapolis plays a central role and we get into why. A um, little bit about Maurice Broadus. He's not only a best-selling author, he's also a community organizer and teacher, does a lot of work with the Kepra Institute, reference uh, previous Michael Loves Indie episodes with Imhotep Adisa and Paulette Fair, both of whom are leaders of the Kepra Institute. Maurice Broadus is also a teacher and librarian here in Indianapolis, and we talk about how he's integrated these different parts of his life or stacked these different parts of his life. It was really inspiring to me. So if you're uh, someone who's interested in how you know, science fiction in this case can lead to more intelligent social commentary and, and challenging work that brings people together. You'll enjoy this conversation. Or if you're someone who's a writer or a musician or visual artist or actor, I think you'll be really inspired. It definitely inspired me to do more as a musician and give myself permission to suck, as Maurice says uh, when he gets into his own process. He's a very prolific writer and just an inspiring person. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Maurice Broadus. And thank you again, Maurice, for taking the time today. Um, we're sitting here in, in beautiful Salesforce Tower and uh, on, a, on a, a late April day. It's been a month since uh, Sweep of Stars came out. Is that right? Right, right. Oh, man. It's all gone by so quickly. It's, I'm still in the middle of the whirlwind. And, and I mean, is, you know, I, I did my homework as, as, you know, as we get into the conversation because I really want to talk about the book. But um, one thing, when I, when I bought the book and read it, You've got a rabid fan base that's national in some ways, international, and people. I mean, it was very positive, but it's just like I, I got, I got. It was kind of entertaining all the different kind of opinions and people trying to predict what the next book in the trilogy is going to be like. Right. That must be surreal. It is. Uh, I, 
I keep telling folks, like, I, I feel like I'm in uncharted territories. Like, I've been writing for over 20 years now, but, um, yeah, this is a whole new level for me. Well, one of the, thi- it's one of the things that I'll ask some questions about, too, is it's inspiring because um, your story, your story, I think, is inspiring to a lot of us in terms of how you've stayed at it for so many years. And when your first novel was published, you were 40? Is that right? Right. Right, uh, 40-year-old, first-time uh, author, first-time published uh, novelist, that sort of thing. And, uh, but, yeah, I mean, even then, that was the culmination of man, close to, oh, man, I don't even want to start doing the math on that. But I'd been at it for, even at that point, for well over a decade, but, uh, you know, writing short stories and, and several practice novels along the way. Yeah, and, and it's, it's almost like a story of, um, well, and I guess, could you have predicted that in the last 10 years it'd go from... Um, you know, releasing your first novel to building the kind of national fan base and, you know, working with Marvel and everything <laughs> like that. That's that. Could you have predicted that? No, not even a little bit. Like, I've, I've spent even a good chunk of this year going, wait a second, have I made it? Is this it? Am I there now? Are you like, can I relax? But, and the answer to that is always no, I can never relax. But yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I've been trying to just focus on, you know what? I am living exactly what I dreamed about doing. Uh, so I might want to take a breath or two and just enjoy the moment. That's we could all we could all uh, um, you know benefit from that perspective. I I, I think maybe I, I really want to talk about Sweep of Stars that I've just finished in the last week or so, the new book um, uh, published to great reviews. But I think I'd like to start at the beginning because this is a show about Indianapolis, and you're well known in Indianapolis. You know the Indianapolis Monthly, and you used to write for the Star and everything like that. But I really want people to. Um, get a sense of who you are, kind of your, your and, and you, again, you have a, um, uh, an upbringing not like anybody I've met before, because you have roots in, in London mm-hmm. and in the Caribbean, and so um, could you say a few words about, uh, you know, your upbringing and what got sure, you here? Sure, So, uh, yeah, so I was born, me and my brother, actually, we were both born in, in London, England. Uh, my mother was in a nursing school at the time. She's born from, in Jamaica. Um, she became pen pals with my father, who was uh, stationed in Greenland at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, they, you know, they met and fell in love, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and then uh, moved from uh, London, England. When I was a child, we moved from London, England to uh, Franklin, Indiana. To, you know, as you can imagine, absolutely no culture shock at all involved in that, that move. Um, and we lived there for a couple So not Franklin Township, Franklin the Franklin, town. Indiana, so it has, the, has the college. It's mm-hmm. in Johnson County. Has the college, but, right? Okay, but I'm so I'm imagining not a lot of diversity. Oh, oh no, we know. lived on the the black side of Franklin. Um, I think there were what, eight houses of us total. Oh wow! <laughs> so, but yeah, but yeah, exactly. Not not exactly known for a, as a stronghold of diversity. Um, we we lived there for a couple of years and moved up to Indianapolis. And I think it was about ten or so at the time. And uh, I've been in Indianapolis ever since. And uh, I never counted on falling in love with Indianapolis the way I have, especially as an adult. Uh, as, as a kid, you know, you don't really appreciate that all that much. All I knew is I was being shuffled from school to school. Uh, but uh, once I graduated college and was really starting to pursue my writing career, well, actually my interest in writing, because I actually wasn't supposed to have a career in writing, uh, but I, you know, something I just kept doing, I, I knew I had to keep writing. And so as I was doing that after college, uh, I realized that you know, part of my voice as a writer is just this constant search of for identity. You know, I haven't been black in England, and black, black here, black in, in, in Jamaica. You know, there's all these different things that go into what, you know, one of the things that kept coming back to me is what does it even mean to be black? 
what does that mean? Um, and then who am I within that story? And, uh, and that was one of the things which I, I just keep interrogating uh, as part of my own journey. But then also Indianapolis becomes a symbol of that for me. So, uh, so me interrogating Indianapolis is just another aspect of me interrogating my identity because I'm trying to find my place within the context of that story. And frankly, I, I see Indianapolis as, the, as a pure distillation of what it means to be in America. Wow. The, just a, like a microcosm, the, the, like an intersection of all these different... Of all, all the these things, from yeah. history to all, all the things that go into you know, where we find ourselves, all that. Uh, as I continue to interrogate the history of Indianapolis, as I continue to interrogate you know, how, how things get planned, how things get laid out, uh, you know, I'm just like, oh, this is literally, it's just a story of, of, in, of America in wow. microcosm. I, I think about, too... Um, and, I, and I, I think about this a lot in my day job, the mix of the industries. So agri- we still have, I mean, agriculture is obviously nothing like it was 100 years ago, but agriculture, manufacturing, and the hard sciences, but then a lot of tech. I think about places, like there are places in the U.S. that are successful, but with more, um, uh, with not as diverse economies as well. You know, so that's, I, sorry. I, I, so, so, you've, so you've found that, and this makes sense as to why you draw upon it in the books that I've read. So you find that to be exciting, and you draw oh, inspiration from it. Okay. Well, so uh, in my own personal journey, I came up, uh, I was ra- I'm ra- raised Christian, strong Christian background, uh, so, uh, so I grew up in those spaces. Those are the spaces that raised me. Um, on the other hand, I'm also a trained scientist. Yep. I got my degree in biology here at IEPUI, and so I have that, uh, you know, that, that science background, that science training. And yep. then on top of that, I'm also an artist. And, yes. And so, it's, it's, so even then, I, I feel like I'm on this journey of truth, and I just have three different tools at my disposal: my theology, my science training, and my art, all to, at my disposal to help me try oh. and figure out what truth is. I'll add revolutionary to that. You're part revolutionary <laughs> too, because again, that that comes out that that comes out in the books. It just, I think, um, and again, I'm just urging anybody listening um, to the show to seek out Maurice's work, and we're, we're going to talk especially about Sweep of Stars because I think, like like great art, it just forces you to look at things in a different way. Um, that's really interesting about, you know, that, you know, uh, Indianapolis being sort of representative of, of what's happening in broad, more broadly in the culture. Now, um, I, I, I know from your bio, for a while you worked as a toxicologist, right, right when you were younger. Right, right? Uh, 20 years, uh, environmental toxicologist, uh, doing a lot of water quality testing. My kids only remember it as like, didn't you kill a lot of fish? And I'm like, that's, that wasn't quite the job, but I get that that's what sticks with you. Uh, so yeah, so as a, as a lab on the uh, west side of town for yeah, for, wow, for yeah, twenty years. Did um, was that something you enjoyed? Were there aspects of it the, in like the um, like the scientific method and things like that that were um, that where you look back and that sort of um, provided any, a sort of a foundation or progression to? Yeah, so it's like it's, uh, the job did its it did its function. It paid my bills, so there was that aspect of it. Because my big thing was science itself, I'm just curious about things, uh, curious about how life works, curious about how things are put together, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and so, uh, so it's actually me in school scratched that itch. And so I was always taking all sorts of different classes that had nothing to do with my biology degree, but I just was just curious. And so I explored a lot of the different sciences as I was uh, going through school. Then um, after that, the great, frankly, the best thing about my job is it allowed me a lot of time to practice writing, um, because of the, you know sometimes in a lot of ways it was you know, 
fairly standard. So I knew what I was going to, what was going to happen, you know, hour by hour, day by day, you know, so it was a very consistent, very routine thing. So it would allow me plenty of time to get some writing done on the clock. I mean, not officially. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> so, 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 and then, and then you just kept writing. Is mm-hmm. that right? I mean, just, yep. just non- nonstop. I've, uh, um, when did I start writing? I probably started writing in earnest, probably in my senior year in high school. Okay. Uh, no, probably my junior year of high school. I, I was in a, I was in the AP program at the time, and my teachers uh, recognized something in me about the, like, hey, you know, writing is your thing, so we're gonna really push you on this. And uh, and I developed this love for it uh, even more so. Um, but then I was the first person in my family to go to college, and so my mom was like, yeah, I'm not paying for you to <laughs> have a degree in, in writing, um, and so that's why I went uh, through. And as a scientist, that was something that was our compromise. I could I could be a scientist. She was fine with that, um, and so I quit writing for a couple of years. Uh, but yeah, by around my junior year in, in college, I was like, I just noticed like, oh, the pen just found its way back into my hand, and I just would start writing again. So I was like, all right, I need to just come to grips with the fact that this is what I love to do, and this is what is just a part of me and shapes a lot of who I am. So let me just and embrace it. I'm, I'm imagining, and from from reading previous interviews with you. Um, you know, I'm uh, comic books and graphic novels, science fiction, horror, kind of all all of it. Is that was that? Uh, oh, all, all that's in play. Yeah. Um, so you know, even to this day, so I quit collecting comic books. What was that year 2002? Uh, I only remember that because that was the year my second son was born. Yeah, I quit collecting records when my oldest See, son was born. It, yeah. That's yeah. the thing. And so right. my, my wife was like, you can either keep collecting comic books or you can feed the kids. And so you know, after some prayer. Decided maybe I ought to, you know, feed the kids. So, <laughs> so quick collector comic books. At I think at the time when I quit, I had a oh no, had I still have it a collection of like over twenty thousand comic books, um, which I started and like start collecting like fifth grade. Mm-hmm. That was my thing. My introduction to genre was all through comic books. Yeah. So that you know they they talk about, um, you know, conceptual artists, and then they they talk about you know I think they say exploratory or experimental artists, and they're different kinds, but. Did did you have a concept? Because I mean, I think there's there's no doubt, and I'm not a I, I'm not, not not a diehard sci-fi fan, but but people describe you as the science fiction Afrofuturist, you know, slash slash right. uh, writer uh, Maurice brought us at that at that time when you were you know high school college age. Did you have this kind of concept, or was that something that that came to you over time? No. Um. <laughs> and now a peek into teenage Maurice. Um, <laughs> Cue the dramatic music. Right. Dun, oh, dun, dun. I was so such a mopey teenager, and like in the, uh, my introduction to the genre was through Edgar Allan Poe, and so I was just like, oh man, that really resonates with me. But you know, so it was just like I was all death and melancholy and all my writing and everything, and so. Uh, but part of that was I, I didn't realize at the time I was a uh, I was drawn to horror stories is what it boiled down to. And so that's why, you know, the first half of my career, I spent actually as a horror writer. Um, you know, I d- dove into Stephen King and, and, and was a huge King fan. And, and that was my introduction to the genre. Uh, for, so the first 10 years or so of my career was me as a horror writer. Um, and, and then looking back on it, I, I realized that uh, me writing horror was actually me writing out of a, a place of anger. Wow. Um, you know, I was mad at the world. I was mad at uh, where, we, where we find ourselves and, and Horror became an easy tool for me to vent that anger, that that rage of uh, you know, 
that weight of history and, and oppressive systems and, and having to navigate the fact that I have to do a search and try and figure out what my identity means, you know, mad about that, right? And all the forces that led to me being in that sort of situation. Yeah. And so horror became a, an easy tool for me to uh, explore that rage and, and, and get that out and, and sort of vent that. And, and again, from, from reading a little bit about your background, you've referred to before in interviews saying, obviously experiencing racism personally, but also kind of the, the, kind of macho jock culture is right. that, that part of it part of it too and oh, trying yeah. to figure out how where you fit in and, right. that, yeah. and all of that because i was a, a quiet creative kid who would rather be off by himself reading books especially comic books um i have no interest in the jock games or the macho posturing or anything like that no you know save all that i i'm good yeah um in fact I'm, <laughs> i remember going back to my 20-year uh, reunion bumping into one of my bullies and uh and he's just like oh man you know after a while, we just all figured, you know, you were just so weird. We were just going to leave you alone. And I was just like, all right, you know what? If that's my defense mechanism, oh. just my flat out weirdness. All right, I'm good. Was there a tinge of regret from him? Do you think? Oh, uh, there was. There was like a, this weird twinkle in his eyes, just okay. like you know, yeah, we were so yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, I get it. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I'm assuming he's not a best selling author. <laughs> he, he, he is not. <laughs> That's, does that give you a little, like, it, just a little bit of satisfaction? I, I try not to live in that space. Yeah, right, yeah. Good for you. <laughs> right. Good for you. Um, now, you know, one thing that I've enjoyed, this is kind of an unexpected twist. I don't know. I think this is, like, my 30th or 31st episode. I haven't done a lot of this, but I've had the had the um, honor of, of talking with a lot of artists, and I'm kind of obsessed with process because um, – because there's there's some, you see some similarities and some differences and I, and I guess what I'm getting at is so from that from that young age as you were kind of working out your own identity would you just get up and write every day and, or or and or would you or or was it you know short stories that really started to kind of form the the sort of structure of your writing or was it something else entirely so let's see. So I graduated IEPY in '93, uh, and that was when I started my first novel. Uh, and my first novel I wrote from '93 until the year 2000. So seven years trying to figure out what it even means to write a novel. And this first novel would never see the light of day because <laughs> it was my first novel. Um, but it was called Strange Fruit, and it was about an interracial couple. They go back to her hometown, and, and all sorts of racial stuff pops up because of that. It was a main guy is having a search for his identity in all this context and, and it's in southern Indiana so it's steeped in the history of that time and that era and that, that location and so you have all the ghosts of the past coming back and haunting it and uh, in, in principle it actually sounds like something I should go ahead and finish and, or, or rewrite and publish but um, I could see the movie plot right, as you right? described it yeah totally um, but it was a first novel with all the first novel problems and it takes me so much energy to rewrite it but uh, but even then, like I said, there's seven years of doing that. And that's a long time to go without beginning, middle, and especially the end. Um, so, yeah, so I write short stories uh, along the way because uh, short stories actually is my first love. I mean, left my own devices, I would probably write nothing but short stories. Like, literally, wow. I have a short story here uh, on my notepad right now that no one's asked me for, but I wanted to write an, uh, another short story before I dive into my next project. Um, I love short stories. Um, they're like my lab, so I get to practice different things and different techniques uh, in the short stories. And I'll bring all the stuff that I learned writing short stories, I'll bring them to bear in the novels. But for me, it's uh, always about, you know, let, let me just you know, try something new in the, in the short story, experiment a little, build, build different writing muscles up in, in the short story. So um, as far as process goes, it's like 
I look at it as I'm always writing. I'm always writing. Um, sometimes I'll even put words on a page, but <laughs> I am always writing. Yeah. The, um, no, but, you know, you teach, um, you do a lot of work for Kepra, and you write. Um, what is it? So what, what I find, and I, I, I know this is common of others, um, is it a struggle to summon up the amount of uh, ener- creative energy and or emotional labor to get up and do the daily writing when you were younger, or was it, or was it sort of a release? You know, so. yeah. For for me, writing's always been it's always been a release. It's always been a way for me to process my feelings. It's always been my comfort, and it's just something I'm just passionate and, and I just love doing. So, it's it's easy for me to just keep. You know, it's it's hard for me to get up and do the other jobs. Yeah. Frankly, more than anything else, yeah. than, than writing. Writing is uh, how I breathe. So wow. And um, so progressing, I'm imagining, you know, and I know it happened over many years, but going from short stories to a novel to building entire worlds, you know, for a trilogy, that's a, that's a, um, uh, I'm I'm just trying to get get my brain around kind of how that happens. Um, So what, um, if you, were there a couple of breakthroughs that stand out? You know, especially as you're going from short story, and I, and my understanding is, uh, pimp, pimp my airship originally was a short story, is that right? Right. right. But where are there are there breakthroughs kind of in the '90s or early 2000s that kind of that, that stand out for you as sort of those uh, jumping off points? Right. Um, so my first one in the early 2000s was uh, there's a when the National Horror Convention is called a, the World Horror Convention, and uh, the second year I attended, I won the because they had fi- a different uh, fiction contest, and I won the short story contest. Um, and, and so and, and it was a two-pronged prize, at least in my eyes. So one, I, I get published in Weird Tales magazine, which was and, and it is one of the biggest uh, magazines in the genre. So one, I got published in there. But two, my award was handed to me by Neil Gaiman. Wow. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I think I'm on the right track. <laughs> And were you a fan, a fan of Neil previously? I mean, yeah, yeah, you could say Sandman that. and he's yeah, you, you, you could say that. Obsessive. I wouldn't say obsessive. Okay. My wife might say obsessive. Okay. I, I was a fan. Okay. I, I was a big fan. Um, I still have several pictures of me and him together. So, yes. Did, was there an exchange? Was there a conversation? Did he... Did he uh... I'm sure there would have been if I had remembered English as my first language <laughs> at the time. But, uh, yeah, you know... I was just happy to receive the the award. I'll say that. So you get so you get so weird tales. You so, you win the award. Neil right, Gaiman is right, handing it to you, right. and then at that moment, are you thinking, okay, this this is this is it. I'm on the right track. This is what I'm meant to do. Wow. Um, my next breakthrough probably did come actually with the publication of Pimp My Airship. Okay. Um, and, and it was important for a couple reasons. So one, so that came out in like 2009 about then. Um, and so like I'm like I said, I'm 10 years into my horror career, and now I've written the story that is not a horror story at all. And uh, in fact, it's in this genre called steampunk, yeah. uh, and, and so it's a complete break and deviation from what I uh, what I've done. Um, and then when it's published, I'm like, there was something about that story. Yeah. And so, uh, and so I, I count that as another one of my major milestones was was that was that was exactly that story. Absolutely. Um, and then my next milestone, I would probably uh, go with. Uh, I mean, I, was, I could go easier out with the first novel, which was a breakthrough, because all of a sudden now people look at you differently, because like now there's a novel out with my name on it, and, and uh, that was the, the first of the Knight, Knights of Breton Court series, so it was Kingmaker, so when Kingmaker came out, and especially when it came out to, you know, it won an award and all that kind of thing, it was like, oh, 
oh, now people look at me different. Um, so yeah, so there are all these different markers where all of a sudden people look at me different. Uh, when Buffalo Soldier came out, my, uh, the novel that, uh, uh, novella that actually is it still in the Pimp My Airship universe. Yes. Um, when that came out, people looked at me different. They're like, yep. wait a second, you're, you, you're somebody. Yeah. yeah you know, it's, it's, so it's like, oh, okay. So both with um, Pimp My Airship and, and the new book, Sweep of Stars. Okay, so this is where, like, my my point of entry my only point of entry is someone who makes music. And if we have time, I mean, you've inspired me in a very specific way that I, I want to share before we end the interview okay. and, I, and I'll share that. But so, so like I can, I can relate to, you know, um, uh, composing a piece of music. I can relate to, you know, lyric writing, which is per- personally more of a struggle for me. The part that blows my mind is the almost like mapping out a world mm-hmm. that then, um, can be understood and then excite the reader and just all, I mean, I just all the amount of work that that must take because, you know, one character or one, you know, community in that world, you change one thing and then there's a ripple effect that happens. Right. Um, what has, is, is that, is that something that was all that, that was always of, is of interest to you from a young age or that do you call it, they call it world building well, a lot in the right. genre. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a thing, right? right? Yeah. And I actually teach a world workshop on it. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, because world, world building is something I love to do. I love world building. Um, part of it's cause I came up as a gamer. So I love like Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. things like that. Um, but I, I just love world building. Um, and so, you know, leave me to my own devices. I, I would do as much world building for a short story as I do a novel. Uh, which was part of the problem with the Pimp My Airship short story. I had done a, so much world building to write this 5,000-word short story yes. um, that when the story came out, even though people really liked the story, the, the criticism of it was there is so much world here that we don't get to see. Uh, and, and we're kind of mad about that. And I'm like, oh, well, they were only paying me for a short story, so that's all you're getting. Um, but then I started to peel that back a little bit. So, like, I would start writing other short stories set in the same universe. Because um, there was a throwaway line about uh, the, the star child. So I was like, oh, let me figure out what, what that meant. And so I'd write these stories. And the next thing I know, I've written Step and Razor, which was a, a novelette and came out in Asimov's magazine, which was another milestone for me. Because yeah. when that came out, people were like, oh, you're in Asimov's. You must be able to really write. And I'm like, okay, I guess we'll ignore my, what? 13 year career up to that point, right. but, but yeah. now I can write. Was Asimov a big influence as well? Um, not so much Asimov. Okay. Actually, a lot of the classic, uh, sci-fi writers I'm, I end up discovering after the fact. So I'm a big history guy. So like when I started in horror, you know, I went back, I was, I was like, let me st- study all the, the, the horror masters, the, the, the greats of the, of the genre. Let me, let me do that. And then when I find my, found myself in the fantasy and then science fiction waters, it's like, yeah, who were the folks that came before me? So let me start reading them. So it's all, all that sort of thing. Interesting. Um, and so, the, I, but I kept coming back to writing different stories set in that Pimp My Airship universe. Um, and I think I ended up with like a total of like 13, 13 or so stories or novelettes or novellas all set in, in that same world. And then after all that, it's like, well, let me go ahead and just write a whole novel, a novelization of that original short story. And uh, that's how uh, Pimp My Airship came about. But it's just because I had done so much world building and I was like, no, I do want a chance to see more of that world and, yeah. and flesh out what that meant. And so I take all of those lessons and apply them to uh, Sweep of Stars when I sit down to, to finally do Sweep of Stars. Interesting. Is, um, again, as a casual you know, science fiction fan, um, is ha- 
do you embrace genre and subgenre, or is that somewhat of a somewhat somewhat of a problem? And because I, I in my mind it could it could kind of go either way. So and I'm thinking you know I'm thinking at a really high level steampunk you mm-hmm. know, but I know steampunk's got a very rabid fan base. Right. One day you know I was at Kepra it was before the pandemic a few years ago talking with Imhotep and Paulette, and uh, you came came in and you had just returned from an Afrofuturist. Uh, convention, oh. I think in Florida, yep. you know, and we, we talked for a few minutes there. And so, and so it's like, I know that, uh, these, these genres evolve and sometimes splinter into sub, you know, genres and sub genres is, is, is that a thing that you embrace or how do you kind of handle that? Cause I, cause I find, and, 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 you know, your fans say this too. I mean, you, you cross multiple right. genres for sure. Yeah, yeah. So like when I sat down to write Pit My Airship, I was doing a deliberate deconstruction of steampunk. Um, cause <laughs> Well, let me back up a little bit. I didn't know anything about steampunk except to make one joke on Twitter, right? Uh, I said, uh, I'm going to write a steampunk story with all black characters, and I'm going to call it Pimp My Airship. <laughs> that was it. That was the whole joke. Uh, and then I left. I'm like, I, well, that was my joke. I'm good. Um, and then, uh, like, six editors wrote me and said, when that story's done, send it to us. Oh, my gosh. And so that's why, that's why I'm like, oh, I guess I better write this story. So uh, I, I sit down you know, to write this story. Um, but like I said, I, I'm, I'm like, I don't know that much about the genre. So I go back and I start reading, you know, who are the greats in the genre, you know, what's come before me and everything. And I'm just like, uh, and after a while, it's just like, I can't do this. I mean, this really feels like a genre that has gone out of its way to erase black people out of it. I mean, just completely. Um, and so I was like, so I got to come at this differently. And so when I, so what I ended up doing is I just sat down and just put on some Parliament Funkadelic, and I was like, well, let's just see what happens oh now. Oh, my gosh. And uh, so that's why the, 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 the story and then the book is just riddled with, like, Parliament Funkadelic uh, references, if you, if you look close. Of course. Us. Like, yeah. the airship in question is called the Bop Gun, so, oh I mean, there, there's gosh. that. And like I said, they go to rescue the star child. And so after a while, you start going, oh, oh, I see what you're doing now. That's fantastic. Like, okay. And, uh, and, 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 I mean, I'm assuming uh, Parliament and Funkadelic fans picked up on it. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah that's correct. fantastic. Well, and so, so I, I do, so that was the only, uh, so, so normally I don't really pay attention to genre labels. It's like, I will write what I want to write and then worry about how it slots in later. Or better yet, I'll just write it and let someone else uh, slot it for me. Because, um, like, when my first novel, Kingmaker, came out, I thought I was writing a, a coming-of-age horror story just set on the streets of, uh, of Indianapolis with, you know, Zombies, dragons, magic, you know, the usual. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but then uh, when, I, when it sold to a publisher, they were like, oh, this is a great urban fantasy. And I'm just like, I'm a horror writer. What do you mean urban fantasy? Uh, but then at the time, I, was, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know there was an urban fantasy subgenre. Okay. Did not know. Um, in my, so in my head, I heard urban fantasy, and I was like, oh, urban fantasy, that might be like urban radio. So, oh, urban fantasy, code for black fantasy. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm an urban fantasy author. And then later someone explained, no, no, that's not what we meant by urban fantasy. But I was like, oh, all right. So, so yes, yeah, so I don't worry about the, the labels and the subgenres so much because, uh, you know, some of that's just marketing. Um, some of that is fodder for geek arguments about, you know, is Star Wars fantasy or, or is it science fiction? No, yeah. no, I, you know what? I'm not interested. So, you're, so, in the, so it sounds like you're, you, you have an openness to sort of going across, like if there's hard, hardcore Afrofuturism fans and, you know, in the case of Pimp My Airship, Steampunk, you're okay just kind of oh, yeah. crossing the, yeah. I, I didn't even know I was an Afrofuturist until someone told me after the fact. Really? Uh, I, I have a short story collection called Voices of Martyrs, and the stories are, uh, are divided. There's stories set in the past, stories set in the present, stories set in the future. Um, and so to my head, I was just doing a chronicle of like, in a lot of ways, that was how my career went. 
Um, and so when the review started coming out, they were just like, oh, you know, we, we love the collection, da 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 you know. But it's like, but when Maurice starts telling the stories in the future, you know, it, that's when he really lets his Afrofuturist lens, uh, flag fly. And I'm just like, Afro what now? Because I'd never heard the label. I'd yeah. never heard the term before. Um, and so then I just start going, like, what does that even mean? And so then I start doing that. Like I said, go back and, and figure out what does, it, what does that label mean? Who were the greats in that? What came before me? So then I start doing all that reading. One thing I get from your books that I've read, and I don't know if this fits with the Afrofuturism genre, but here, here's, and this is like, like I said, I, when I, uh, I've read them and um, also try to allow myself to really sit with the ideas, be challenged by it, is it's like kind of like um, how in, in, um, in Western society, especially in a white-centric um, society, that a lot of, a lot of times in, um, in the arts, black characters being very one dimensional and playing into stereotypes. And, and I've seen in your books, it's almost like, um, a, you know, the centrality of, um, black, um, you know, African and, and African inspired societies, more egalitarian and more sort of honoring the, the, um, dignity of the individual. Am I on to something? I mean, is that, is that you were very much onto something? Okay. Okay. Um, Cause a lot of that is sort of the, uh, sort of the, the ethos uh, that I've developed over at the Kepper Institute. You know, I've, I've been over there for you know, five, six years now and, uh, and you know, just sort of embraced and, and, and just swim in those waters. I mean, that's the air we breathe right, over there is, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, seeing the person in front of you and respecting their absolute personhood, their whole personhood, you know, uh, not, not for anything they can do for us, but for just for simply who they are. Yep. Um, and so that, that, so that whole peak into, you know, just appreciation appreciating people's just very, their core humanity. I was just like, you know, that, that that's the dream, right? Yeah. That's, that's the, the dream. The layers and the depth. And, mm-hmm. and I know again, from, from other interviews and it was, there's even a photo of you wearing a, a t-shirt that's unapologetically black. And, <laughs> and again, this is something that impressed upon me. Cause I, you know, I, I'm always learning, but you know, you had made a statement I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically like, basically like there's a lot in um, Western culture that would make, a black person want to be smaller to right. kind of appease right. white people or make people feel more comfortable. Right. And you, and it, and, and it's, you're, you're almost, you're almost saying, you know, um, uh, we shouldn't apologize. Right. We should be who we are. Is that? Well, I mean, for better or for worse, that was part of my journey. So growing up in, uh, in I grew up in churches, but I actually grew up in all white churches coming up. Wow. Uh, and, and in those spaces, uh, it, it, that was the tacit message is like, Hey, you need to make yourself small. So you fit in better around here. Yeah. That was the that was the, the take home lesson, uh, and that that's again that's something that I end up internalizing for for a lot of years, and, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, I, I was put in the advanced program here in, in the school system, um, which puts me in a mostly white environment there too. Um, and again, in order to fit in and to not be bullied, for example, you know, it's like all right, let me make myself small. Let me make myself small. Um, and so that that for a young person, you know, all the way through into college. What's that? What's that going to do to them? Um, and so, you know, by the time I get out of college, I am small. But then it's like after that, it's like, all right, I'm going to go on this journey because this isn't this isn't who I'm supposed to be. Yeah, this isn't how I'm supposed to live. So, what does it mean to start unlearning a lot of these lessons? And I've, I think a lot of my journey since then has been unlearning a lot of those lessons. Yeah. So, but I mean, those are the lessons of swimming in. America and, and, and the uh, well the West the, the you know supremacy 
all that. So those are the lessons of supremacy. So it's just like, all right, now that I've learned those lessons, now what do I do to unlearn those lessons? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to take everybody on that journey with me. Yeah. So um, I want to get, I want to, can I get into um, the the novels? I mean, uh, we talked about sure. Pintmeyership, but I want to yeah. get into Sweep of Stars. Cause well, I, well, there's one thing about Pintmeyership please, please, yeah. uh, that, uh, so, so again, part of this discovery process, right? So there came a point after I, I was done being a scientist and everything, and I'm like, all right, so who do I want to be now? Right, and and so the question I kept asking myself is like, I, I'm a writer. I'm an artist. What what does it look like for me to use that gift to make change in the community? I have no idea what that means and what that looks like. And so, that's the central question I'm asking myself as I sit down to write the novelization of Pimp My Airship. You know, the main character, he's a, a, a poet, and he's going on this journey because he's he's happy to just stay in his lane and just be a poet, go to his nine to five, come home, you know. Uh, spit a couple rhymes. Sleepy. And yep. And, right, and then, yeah. uh, and then uh, you know, and that would be his life. But then he goes on a journey about what does it mean to use his gift, use his voice to leverage change in his community. So this is an issue I was working out internally. I just do it in a book. Uh, <laughs> so, well, what's, what is, what's profound about that to me, and this is part of what inspired me um, reading the book right now, is that um, there's uh, for... I'm imagining that there um, are voices saying that the time you spend on your art, that's self-indulgent. You know, you're isolating from other people. You know, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm not, I, I haven't had the, like, in, I haven't had, um, you know, uh, um, 0.1% the success as a, as a musician that you've had um, as a writer. But there's, where, where that, where that um, you know, inspired me personally as I was reading the book is, you're you're pulling all these references from your teaching and from what you see in Indianapolis, and you're putting them right in the books, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so that that's so so it's so it's almost like no, it's like that 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 time you know spent um, working it out, you know, writing and things like that. Um, it's not it's not self indulgent. You're it's almost it's like a portal oh, to oh, absolutely. Is that, is that yeah, absolutely? Because what am I doing? I'm, I'm doing. Self-mastery, another thing that we talk about over at Kepler. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing self-mastery. And what is that self-mastery leading to? It's leading me to be a better human being by exercising my gifts and to uh, think about how do I now use these gifts for the benefit of community, which is shaping me into a better person for a start. And then uh, I become an asset to the community on top of that. Uh. So, you know, it all builds, builds together. So nothing about that is, is indulgent or self-indulgent. That, t- that makes me think of Mocon. <laughs> What is what what is Mocon? Can you share? Yeah, yeah. So we're actually doing a stripped down version of that this weekend, as a right. matter of fact. Uh, but Mocon uh, is short for Maurice Convention. <laughs> so there. Okay. So <laughs> I guess that part might be a little self indulgent. <laughs> uh, but basically, it was something that came out of a, a couple of different strands. So one, it was uh, at the time I was working at a church, and they were wanting to do ministry differently. And they were like, Maurice, do you have any ideas about how we could do ministry differently? And I was just like, well, you know, we could uh, do a service where I have some friends of mine come in and, you know, he could do a sermon on, on his unbelief in God. And they were like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. I'm going to run with this. <laughs> um, so, we, so that was MoCon 1. I, I brought in uh, Brian Keene. He's a famous horror writer. Um, at the time, he was mostly known for all of his zombie stuff. And he came in, and we built a, a church service around him giving a sermon about his unbelief in God. And then we, you know, and then we questioned him. It's like, hey, you, know, you have this unbelief in God, but what does it say in your writing? Because it seems to me, as a friend of yours who has read your work, 
you were wrestling with the idea of God through a lot of your works. And so we had we were able to have this conversation. Um, and then we had we must have had like fifty people show up for this for this conversation. Um, and, and and it was just a huge hit. Um, so that was one 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 of the things that we ended up. Another one was the fact that I was trying to trying to find community, right? Because I wasn't fitting in in a lot of the communities, even even the geek community here in town. I just I was not able to find my place, my footing here. So it's like, all right, well, if I can't find a community, I'll do my best to try and build one. So I, so I was trying to build a community, and then on top of that, I was trying to share my social capital with my friends because I was able to, in fact, thanks to uh, a lot of the grants I was able to get through, like the Arts Council and things like that, I'm able to go to conventions across the country. Wow. So I'm building this network of relationships, but my other friends don't have that network of relationships, and they're writers here in town, and they, you know, they're like, oh, you have all these, you know all these people, and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you could know them too. We'll just have a convention. I'll just bring them here. And so that, that's how MoCon started. And, uh, and how long has it been now? 15, oh man, 15 years or so. so it's just, it's just peop, people who, who met, that met you and that you know through your network and they just come together to support each other. Is right, that, is that it? right. We just, yeah. so uh, uh, when it started off, we'd get together and we loved the idea of doing a, a horror convention in a church. So there was that. That's, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's so great. Yeah, we're a bunch of 12-year-olds in some ways. <laughs> um, so we'd have this convention. We'd, we'd do it in a church. Uh, part of it was we would cook meals together. We would cook our meals together, and then we'd all be, uh, have have meals together. So it was uh, basically uh, my favorite parts of conventions, which is going and hanging out in the bar and chatting with folks, building relationships. I was like, well, we'll just make that the entire convention. So we would eat our meals together. We would drink together. We would have these conversations together. We'd just do that for a whole weekend. And I'm like, yep, that's MoCon. That's so cool. <laughs> that's so cool. Um Again, I don't want to. I don't want to jump ahead too far, but um, sweep of stars. So yes. here, so the, my my challenge is, I want to. I'm, I'm going to ask you about some things that really jumped out at me. But it, it is something I'm going to have to reread because it's a big world. You're setting the stage. It's a trilogy, right? The right. Um, the Astro Black trilogy, Correct. right? And I'm going to try to um, ask you about some things without giving away plot elements because I really want people um, listening, if you haven't read it, to to read it. So, at the in the in the beginning, you lay out. A timeline. It takes place a hundred years in the future, and you lay out a timeline of essentially Earth as we know it has collapsed due to environmental failure. There's been um, migrations to other planets, and and uh, Mungano, the world is really what I mean. You, it deals with a lot of different worlds, but but Mungano is central to um, Sweep of Stars. Can you talk a little more about Mungano and the inspiration behind that? Sure. Um, the, uh oh, like how far back do I go? Um, well, there was a short story I wrote. A, a while back, uh, it's called At the Village Vanguard, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's just, I'm laughing because I know the story, which is basically I was pressed for a deadline, and I was I had no idea what I wanted to write for the sci-fi story. So me and my buddy were just sitting around on, uh, you know, we may have been imbibing, I don't know. Um, but I was like, what should I write about? And he was just like, you know what you need to do? You need to put Hallville on the moon. And I'm like, yeah, I need to put Hallville on the moon. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm like, with Long's Donuts? And he's like, yeah, with Long's Donuts. Oh and I'm like, God. yeah, yeah, we need to put Harville on the moon with Long's Donuts. And I don't know why this idea appealed to me, but I ended up writing that story. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, so then, and so that becomes what becomes known as First World. And so in that timeline, it talks about First World being a part of the history that leads up to Gungano. Uh And so basically what happens is there, uh, First World... Uh, uh, during this collapse is happening, First World gets established, um, there, a, a huge accident happens up there, and then the powers that be abandon First World, and then, well, black people move in 
to this area that no one wants anymore. The the, pre, the real estate values are, are low, we'll say. And so black people move in and then they build it into something. And then all of a sudden the powers that be are like, hey, now there's something, we want it back. Which leads to um, a war. Uh, but, then, uh, and that, but then the aftermath of the war, uh, uh, first world is, is, is retained. And then uh, the thought, then the thought comes into, all right, so what now that, now that we have this space, the space is ours, we can do things on our terms, what do we want that to look like? And so they go into this phase called the Upanaji, where, they, where it's like, all right, it's a time of dreaming. What can we be? How do we want to move through the different spaces? Um, it, we, as we rethink our economic system, we rethink our education system, we rethink the priorities of, of our society, what, what, can, what can this look like? Uh, this pan-African vision of, of how we're going to move through spaces now. Um, it took me about a year, and I think it was a year and a half of, of dreaming of, uh, that went into uh, Mungano. Wow. Uh, I, uh, that's how, uh, in a lot of ways, that's how me and uh, Imhotep became friends, is because uh, we would, uh, every Saturday morning, for a, actually we still do it, so I don't even know why. We, you know, but for a year and a half, we were intentional about uh, you know, getting up and, and having coffee together and just... Uh, dreaming together, you know, thinking through the work that we're doing over at the Kepler Institute. So we think through that work, and then like, what are we working towards? What would we like that you know, if we were to create our our, our, desi- our, our, our desired future states, what what would that look like? Um, and then we'd have random philosophical discussions. Like, yeah. Hey, if if there was a, a governing AI system for us, you know, how would that work in community? And, and so we'd have to, all these arguments, and, uh, you know, and they were literally arguments. It felt like two old nerds just arguing over stuff. And every now and then, some of the young people would sit in on our meeting, like. This is what you guys do all this time when you're yeah. by yourself. Like, yeah, this is this is pretty much it. Uh, this and a lot of jazz music. So. It's, I mean, Imhotep. Um, probably every other time I talk with him is always urging me to, you know, you don't always need to act with urgency. Like sit with sit with some of these concepts and think. What you know, I, I guess sometimes they say what thinking slow and moving fast. But, but. Um, uh, you, in fact, I, I, I picked up a quote, sweep of stars is essentially me dreaming alongside my neighbors in, in terms of what's the future we'd like to see. Right. And I know that um, uh, in the book, and, and, and you, you, you mentioned this earlier, it's like um, uh, the forces on, the imperial forces on original earth then want to go take over these new worlds mm-hmm. that, that have been created. And... Um, uh, the 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 book opens with a naming ceremony, which I found very interesting. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Because it's you know yeah. central to the opening of the right. So the the naming ceremony, uh, basically the the citizens of Mungano experience two naming ceremonies. One is just after they're born, and it's the their family and the, and the community come together. The family chooses the name for for the child. Um, but then the, uh, when the child gets older um, and they're able to define themselves, there's a second naming ceremony basically present themselves to the community and that's when they're welcomed into com- the community as a, a full full-blown me- member of the, of, the, of the community and so uh we, we have a character her, at the beginning of the character her name is at the beginning of the chapter her name is, is leah adisa and uh and, and so she is preparing to come before this community this community that she she loves and has been welcomed into and she's thinking through you know the, you know the implications of choosing a name and, you know, as a young person, def- trying to, what, what does it look like to define yourself uh, and just wrestling with that possibility? And again, it's talked about uh, things in microcosm. That is Mungano in, in microcosm. What does it look like for us to define ourselves on, on our terms? What does that look like? What are the implications of that? Um, and, and the journey that takes us all on. Um, 
Indianapolis is central, obviously, to the book as well, which I found, you know, really interesting. Now, this makes sense, though, at the beginning when you said you've, you know, getting engaged here, you found it to be this sort of um, microcosm. I forget the, 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 the term that you use, so that makes sense. Um, and um, and it's, uh, I don't know how to say this. I'm not going to give it away, but it's like there are thinly veiled or not veiled at all. <laughs> I'm a subtle man. I'm, I'm a subtle man. <laughs> in the names of the characters, right. I was just like, I was like, oh man, when when is Chamber of Commerce going to show up as the arch <laughs> the arch villains in the chapter? But but it, I mean, I think I think it's cool. I mean, and I, I I did I took some humor in it. But here's what I found really interesting about this, um, Maurice, is um, some of the villains are not necessarily what you'd call in like you know modern society like the hard right wing. Some of the villains are the institutions um, uh, purporting, is that the right word, to be progressive. But it's all playing out. It's the same thing going on all, all over the place. So let me just do some, you know, some local, you know, focus and, and be in a lot of ways hyper-specific, but um, just go, hey, I'm going to take pointed satire, aim it at these different institutions because there are truths that can be drawn out because of that. For sure. I mean, I, I, I was literally reading it. I mean, this is a compliment thinking, you know, there'd be some, some reference and I'd be like, okay, right now my plan for the good guys, or the bad guys. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, but I think right. that's good. That's good art. I mean, making me, making me think about, and, and I, I think, I think it's this, you know, a lot, a lot in our modern politics, which I, which like our, our business organization, we represent business and we have to play in that political arena and, you know, Imhotep and Paulette and others have in wild style have heard me kind of complain about what kind of a drag that is. But the, yours is a different. I started to think about <sighs> consumerism mm -hmm. run amok mm -hmm. and how it um, commodifies the individual. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I was um, um, uh, comparing the world, the Mangano's uh, society that they built against original Earth, mm -hmm. and I start. So I, I was thinking. I was, it made me think about kind of you know state of America and the state of Indianapolis, but different from that left right kind right. of thing. Right. And I have to imagine that was part of the game. Right, because, uh, you know, the left-right conversations don't interest me. Because uh, it, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. Am I playing for the good guys or am I playing for the bad guys? That's actually the question. That's, That's the right. question we should all be asking ourselves, no matter where we find ourselves. Yes. It's like, am I playing for the good guys or am I playing for the bad and guys? And it's not a dualistic. It's, it's not an either-or. It's not an either-or. Because you can be well-intentioned. You could be a good guy in a bad place. Heck, you could be the, the whole good versus bad. It's like it kind of boils down to what is your intentionality? Yeah. What is your intentionality? Because uh, there's your intentionality, there's institutions' in, uh, intentionality, then there's the entire system's intentionality. Yeah. And those are working in tandem and concert and sometimes against each other. Yeah. So uh, sometimes you can be a good person in a good spot, but still carrying out yeah. the will of a bad system. When, when first time I sat down with Imhotep and Diop for coffee, mm -hmm. maybe five years ago, I was very intimidated. Very intimidated. Because what I'm used to is engaging people who um, it's a two-sided conversation or they have a lot of assumptions about me. And if I'm being honest, usually I have assumptions about them, you know, but it's just, again, it's like with both I, I, uh, the way you t describe um, Mangano society. And um, it, it reminded me of, of exactly what you're saying is like, is like uh, thinking about it more as a, a broad spectrum, you know, instead of this kind of two-sided. Right. Okay. And so, so like in, in that example, for example, it's like you and I sit down for coffee 
you know, in, in a transactional world, it's like I have an agenda, I'm trying to put forward, you have yes. an agenda, you're trying to put forward. And so this meeting is now about, all right, how do we push our respective agendas forward? Yes. How, do, how can you benefit me? How can I benefit you? You know, that sort of thing. It's like, or we don't have to move through the space like that. Right. We can sit down for coffee without an agenda and go, hey, tell me your story. Who are you? Why are you doing the stuff that you're doing? Tell, tell me about that. Where do you want to be? Yeah. What are you looking to do? And then through that through that lens of, of what we have in common as humans, say, all right, what, what can we do together? Yeah. And then how do you start to build a society around that? Right. Yeah, a community around that. Exactly. Um, the I noticed the um, griot. Griot, yep. The, the, the griot circle, is that what it's called? Yeah. Is, um, is kind of like a justice system. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, was, that was very interesting to yeah. me. Um, yeah. I, I, without, I'm, I don't think I'm giving away any plot right. elements, but... right. So, uh, so, opportunity to reimagine what a criminal justice system might look like. Um, for start, taking out the whole idea of the criminal, you know. <laughs> so, while we start there, it's just like we have people who might be in conflict. So, what does conflict resolution look like? What does conflict transformation look like? What does it look like to use art as a mediator uh, when, when trouble pops up? And so, we have these trained mediators who are basically artists who can improvise in a moment to diffuse situations. And, and, and in, in Sweep of Stars, if I'm remembering correctly, the Griot Circle are storytellers. Mm-hmm. And so instead of this kind of heavy-handed you know, justice system that sort of gives labels to people, they, they literally exist to tell stories. Right. Is that right? Right. To help people understand. It's like, hey, sh- share, me, share with me your story. Yeah. You know, and let me hear your story. And let me hear your story. And then, and again, and then how do these stories interact with each other? And it's like... Even just the process of stopping to tell a story yeah. um, helps diffuse a situation. And yeah. So it's just a different idea, a different, just me trying to figure out how can we just do things differently. Yeah. Um, the Hova Hellfighters. Okay. Is that, that a, is that a Jay-Z reference? It, it kind of is. is. That, okay, okay. I ain't going to lie. Okay. <laughs> Look, in the... Okay, <laughs> so, so we have the Hova Hellfighters. Well, it's, it's, so the Hova part is a Jay-Z reference. The Hellfighters is actually named after the Harlem Hellfighters, okay. um, which was... a. Uh, 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 military unit during World War II, or World War One, might have been World War One. Um, so, you, so you have both both references in, in tandem. So, come, coming back to what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, this whole idea of uh, decentralizing, you know, the, the Western paradigm. Like all the cultural references are non-Western, uh, That's right. which was a, a lot of you know having to think through because even in the early drafts, it's like wait, da, 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 oh wait, this reference, huh? I've just referenced a, a fairy tale, for example. It's like. No, I don't have to do that. I can, you know, now let me you know, think through what, what are some of the older folk tales, African folk tales I could reference instead. You know, so just to go so, such a complete shift um, in terms of, you know, what's being centered here. Yeah. There's a... I, I, there, there, I, but there I, are a lot of hip-hop references I, yeah. in here. I got yeah, lie. and jazz. I love that. Yes. <laughs> There's a ship powered by jazz music. I, I, well, even, even the series itself, Astro Black, is, is named after a Sun Ra song. So. Oh, wow. But I love that because because you, you I mean I've read this you love jazz you love hip hop too you love, yeah you know. well I didn't love jazz at first um, okay. it was actually through my friendship with him Hobeta Padisa that uh, uh, you know developed a love of jazz and appreciation for it so, so I grabbed this quote from page two fifty one but I just and again that it comes at a very um, for me it was a very uh, harrowing part of the plot mm-hmm. I won't give it away because um, I want everybody pick up uh, Sweep of Stars by Maurice Broadus. 
Power wasn't the ability to bend another's will to their agenda. Power wasn't about hurting others. Power was about being a shield to protect others from harm. It didn't have to be destructive or oppressive. It didn't need to erase another's humanity. It could create opportunities. It could connect and include. And when someone was in trouble, placing herself between them and harm was her definition of a good death. Whew. I mean, <laughs> you, have to, you have to read the book in terms of where that, where that passage happens. But, I mean, that's, I mean, that for me almost feels like I'm not a literary critic or psychologist, but that almost feels like your kind of, I mean, that, that, that I think defines a lot of the world that you're building, but also captures a lot of your kind of spiritual beliefs too. Right. Is that accurate? Right. I mean, this is a, in a lot of ways, I feel like this is like the book I was meant to write because it's bringing together, it, it literally does bring together all parts of me into, into this volume. So it's like, it's really feeling like, all right, this is it. This is a, perfect distillation of if, if there's a Maurice Broaddus novel, you know, I think this might be it. You mapped it out as a trilogy. So this is before, yeah. did you know, did you know? Bef- mapped is a strong word, okay. but please go ahead. <laughs> because, but, but upon the release of the book, you were very open that this, this will be a trilogy. Right. Black Astro will be a trilogy. Right. Um, <laughs> so if you want to, it's kind of a process question, Yeah. but uh, you know, when, when Superstar sold, uh, the only thing that existed was three chapters and an outline of book one. Um, and there was a bidding war between five different publishing houses over it. Good uh, problem to have. Yes I'm and no. It was a good problem for my wife. It was a bad problem for me. My, my wife loved the fact that all these people are bidding on it. I was basically in a corner weeping because I'm just like, these people don't know this book does not exist. <laughs> and at some point, I'm going to have to write this. Okay, thing. You're, you're thinking about the labor, the labor that it'll take, right? And the, and the higher the the higher the price, and the higher the, the price. I'm just like, oh man, this is uh, oh okay, yeah, it's gonna be. So so I was feeling that sort of weight on it, um, but then uh, I was reassured they were just like, well, hey, cash the check. They can't take it away from me after that. Right. So <laughs> so right. there's that. But then there's a the whole idea of like, no, what they're bidding on is you to do a story. That's right. And so you can't you can't fail. You can't disappoint because it's your story. So that, does that that kind of relieved me on that? So, but yeah, they they and the whole idea was for the the, the whole pitch was it would be a trilogy. Um, but like I said, I had an outline for book one. Like, yeah, I'll be curious to see where it goes from here too. So, so and I, I hope I hope I'm not. I hope, I'd never ask anything confidential or anything mm-hmm. like that. So then to do that, how how much do you do you have? A, obviously, you've got kind of an outline of and an arc, but then. D- do you, you also, I think, in another interview mentioned there's some a lot of improvisation that, mm-hmm. that, that you applied to this book, too. So is it mm-hmm. sort of like I'm imagining a structure, but then is there still room for improvisation in two and three? So in two and three, there was improvisation in book one. Okay. Because, <laughs> okay. yes, so three chapters and an outline. That was all that existed. But I always refer to outlines as the lie we're agreeing to because there's no promise I'm going to stick to this outline. And so, yeah, I deviated a lot in, in, from the, even that initial outline. Um, and then it was only at the end of book one that I'm like, all right, so now, so I can't even map out book two until I figure out where they are at, at the end of book one. And so book one gets done, and it's like, oh, wow. Oh, didn't expect any of that. So can't wait to see what uh, book two is uh, going to look like. Actually, I've just finished the uh, rough draft of book two. So I, I do know at least the middle act now. Yeah. <laughs> so. Did, did again? Did you ever think? I mean, th- this is again what's inspiring to me. I'm 46, and um, it's like, uh, you know, from launching your first novel to then you got publishers bidding over, you know, the right to publish your trilogy, um, getting an advance. You know, <laughs> so you've got more resources now right. to to um, to. 
um, you know, and just, just the, the, the fan base. Um, does that, so I can see on one hand, it could, that kind of um, uh, feedback could fuel the process, mm-hmm. you know. I can see on the other hand, and I, I'm like, I'm like, f- 55% extrovert, 45% introvert. So I'm near mm-hmm. the mid, but, but I, for me, Same. is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, for me, that could be distracting because I, I don't like conflict. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it could present, you know, th- th- um, so um, how have you handled, you know, New York review of books? I mean, you know, the, it's the, the, um, you know, the, the national attention yeah. has that, has that been fuel? Has it been distraction? Has it been not none of the above? Um, I try, honestly, I, I try not to pay attention to it. Um, so even while I'm like, I, like I said, I just turned in the, the rough draft to, to book two, um, and I, even as I felt that last month, it's like in that last month, I really have to get it turned in this month. But even in there, I'm like, but I'm going to take a break because I'm feeling stress and pressure and all this kind of stuff. So I'll take a break and I'll write a short story. So even in that last month of writing the novel, I, th- I wrote five short stories, um, just to that's how I, I relieve the stress. So I got that, all that on one hand. Then on the other hand, you know, I'm still a middle school teacher, and. Uh, if you ever think you have pressure <laughs> yeah. or you start to think you're somebody, stand in front of a classroom full of middle schoolers. They will remind you that they are completely not impressed with you. You know, <laughs> and I want, I, want to, I want to ask, I won't name the school, but my, my uh, sixth grade son came home one day and he said, Dad, there's a teacher at school who's written all these books and he's written for Marvel. And I was like, I know, I know. That's cool. <laughs> but you, um, you know, I need to go read usual, the usual suspects is what I need to do. And I apologize. I, ha- I haven't read that yet. But you've, you've, you've talked publicly, though, about how your experience um, teaching children and especially uh, reaching kids who you can see have talent but are misunderstood. Right. It has has fueled your work, so I might ask you to to share if you oh, if yeah. you can. Well, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, like I said, I was, we'll start even with my own journey. So you know, it's a fourth grade, and uh, and at the end of, at the end of my fourth grade year, uh, it was recommended that I go into remedial classes. And uh, my mother got that news and was just like, "Not my son." And they're like, "No, no, he needs to be in remedial classes." And so she went and. You know, raised. We'll just say she raised a ruckus um, at the school and, and demanded that they test me. And so uh, then they tested me, and then it's like, oh, yeah, he should be in the advanced classes. Like, okay, um, because you know they see me in the classroom, and I I, I have a label on me, and that was going to be my label going through. And it, took, it required my mom stepping in and demanding uh, they, that they actually look and know the person in front of them. And it's like, okay, all right, maybe he should be in advanced classes. Um, because, you know, we get labeled. We, we get labeled. And so that was my journey. And I noticed, like, with my brother and, and my cousin, they, I, they got I, different labels. And I just think, sorry to interrupt, yeah, yeah. but I just think all the kids who get labeled and they didn't have a parent who could intervene. Right, right. How many thousands, hundreds of thousands? Get, get lost. Oh my get God. lost. Yeah. Right. And so, and th- so then, I, you know. I watched their journeys through school, and then you know, flat, fast forward to my my, my own children. I you know, I watched them go through school, and you know, and I, I know, <laughs> I do know what I've raised. So I will stay. I will stay, state that uh, my my oldest son he loves rules. He loves rules, and he loves learning your system because he loves being able to use that system, bend that system to his advantage. 
That's just how he rolls. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. My is he kind son. of a political animal then? He knows how, so, knows how to work the, work the system. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I got you. Yeah. Uh, my youngest son does not give a crap about your system. And he will walk through this world on his terms. And I love that about him, too. And, and I, love, I love that about each of them. These are the ones in front of me. But that also means that you know, their journeys through school look radically different. And so, you know, my role here is the same role that my mom had with my with my life, which is, you know, let me try and safeguard them as much as I can. So I, I shadowed them all the way through through school, well, through their junior, uh, through their middle school years. Um, I was a substitute teacher, whatever school they were at, I, I was a sub at that school, so I could just sort of shadow and, and just be be in a ready spot to intervene. So because uh, with my youngest son especially, I mean, I just saw that, oh yeah, he is what, what they called the usual suspect. Um, and then when I was there was a when the school that I was at there was a I think they called it the special ed room, um, and it was a classroom full of those students, and uh, but I loved that st- I loved that class because I was just like these aren't bad kids, these kids are brilliant, um, and so I, I made that comment to the principal. I was just like oh yeah I love volunteering for that class that class is is great and she's like whoa oh you love the special ed class oh that's the only place you're going to be from now on. Uh, and so that's where I was for the, for the rest of that school year uh, because I love those kids. And, uh, and, and the kids know when they're loved. Uh, if, if nothing else, kids know when they're loved. And so when, uh, when the school year ended, one of the kids turned to me and said, hey, Mr. Broaddus, you're going to go to, Link, uh, I shouldn't say, to the, yeah. the, the middle school with yeah. us. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm, uh, I'll still be here or go where my, my kids go. And I'm like, wait, why, wait, why do you ask? And, and he said, because you get us. Wow. And, and I've, I've held that with me ever since. You uh. get us. And I thought, yeah, I mean, you guys are chuckleheads. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you aren't bad kids. Yeah. But there's a reason. So imagining there's a reason that you've kept, you, you continue to teach. Because mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to draw too many inferences, but you could, you could do writing full time now if okay. you wanted to all the time. Absolutely, but, but, yeah. but that's a, so there's an energy that you continue to draw on from the, from the students. Right. right. Although my, uh, my principal refers to me as a co-conspirator with the kids. So <laughs> there, there is that. So there's an energy that goes both ways. Revolutionary. So, right. <laughs> I know. That's fantastic. Um, okay. You want, I got to go back to process. Cause go again, you're, you're very, you're very prolific. And just, again, it's just like what I'll say again, probably for the 10th time, pick up sweep of stars, um, um, it, whether or not it's a great read. I'm a casual science fiction fan and, and it was, it, it did take time. This one for me though, I'm glad I'm glad I didn't pick it up 72 hours before I sat down with you because mm. it does, you know, I had to kind of sit with it, you know, in, in chunks as I read through it um, because of all the, all the um, uh, different worlds that it, it covers. Um, where, and here's a question, both for yourself and when you're advising um, people trying to do creative work, mm-hmm. um, how do you deal with the voice that says, the internal voice that says, this is terrible? or no one's going to like this, or they're going to think this or that, you know, right. that, that, which, which I'm imagining now, maybe you're bulletproof now that you've been doing it for so <laughs> long, but I, but, but, you, but, you know, it's like just kind of constantly powering through that and then finishing things. Right. I mean, I, not to make it about me, but I have 150 unfinished instrumentals in my hard drive, right. you know, and it is, but. it's, it's funny. Cause uh, my high school English teacher, the very first, uh, the very first lesson I, I got from him was he said, writers finish things. And uh, in my my uh, list of uh, advice that I've got ever gotten in life, that's in, that, that's number one of it, which is writers finish things. Um, so I always reach the end of whatever project I, I, I start. So if I start it, I'm gonna get to the end. 
and then, but I also embrace the fact I, I literally, I, I, and I teach this. I say, give yourself permission to suck. It's okay to suck. <laughs> like I said, I just turned in the, I just turned in the first draft of uh, the sequel to Sweep of Stars. Um, the book should be called Breath of Oblivion. So I've just turned in Breath of Oblivion. Yeah, that rough draft is rough. I mean, it's rough, rough. It's, mm. <laughs> but you know what? That's okay. Because the readers aren't going to see that. The only people who's going to see that is me and my editor. I gave myself permission to suck, which allowed me to finish it. And that's how you power through. It's like, you got to give yourself permission to suck. Because once I've, once I finished that draft, it's like, okay, now, you know what? Now I know what I'm working with. Yeah. So I can come back and do a second draft. And I already know that's, I already know the second draft's going to be better because well, in, in the stack of paper in front of me, you know, I do have a short story. I also have some notes that I was going to, uh, that is, is fueling my thoughts for the, the second book. In fact, speaking of commodification, I was thinking about this whole process of art uh, and the role that art plays in Mungano. And it's just like, oh, there's a purpose to art. But Trans- transcendence, the, yeah, the, yeah. It, but and but the but when the keys to why it works differently in Mangano is because if you take out the need to commodify it, if you take out the need to be commercial, and now you're just doing art for art's sake as an expression of who you are and the cultural identity, you're going to produce different art. Yeah, and, and that's and and uh, so I've been meditating on that idea as, as you know, and I'm, that was how I spent my morning. As a matter of fact, was just meditating on, on that idea and what are the, the implications for that in that in that space of Mangano. Um, so yeah, so <laughs> coming back, it's like, yeah, uh, how do I power through? It's like, well, I give myself permission to suck. I finish what I start and then I do another draft Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's do okay. You, do you, do you feel a certain satisfaction when you've, when you've said this is finished? I've, I've, I've stopped. This, this, this draft is done. Is there a, a closure there, or, or are you just on to the next one? Both. Okay. There is a, cl- uh, there is a closure. Um, there's always a closure when you get to that point that it says the end. There is a closure there. Um, now, that closure isn't closed, closed until the book comes out. <laughs> uh, and so the book comes out. It's like when I have no, op- no further opportunities <laughs> to do any more changes, okay, then it is done. Got it. Um, so once they take it out of my hands, sweep was done. I move on to the next project. Uh, is routine important to you? Do you have a set time of the day that's your that's kind of your sweet spot for uh, writing? Yeah, yeah. Usually it's in the mornings. Um, I, I do my best work in the mornings, uh, especially you know, summer. Summers are great because uh, you know I can I can go out on my front porch. I can ride on my front porch. Um, folks can come and just drop by anytime, and I because that that's how I I because you, you spoke about how writing this lonely activity sort of you know, retreat from everybody. This is my way of just fighting against that. It's like, I will write in, in open spaces so that people can just drop in and interrupt me. Wow. Because I, I love, I love the interruption. Uh, you know, if be it from my kids, from my wife, from my mother, my mother lives with us now. So, you know, I love the interruption. So yeah. if friends drop by, other artists drop by, yeah. this is me writing in community yeah. and then being inspired by community. Cause all, all that, all that is still energy yeah. and that's energy that helps fuel me. Has your mother ever said, maybe I made a mistake in pushing you to science and away from writing? Or is that uh, not she, even... She a, has no regrets. Okay. <laughs> or is that, not e- is that not even... I mean, I guess these things, you know, you, they, they well, happen for a reason. Yeah, it, it, it happens for a reason. Yeah. Um, and, and then B, you know, where was that coming from? That was coming from a space of, I want you to be able to take care of yourself. And I don't have a vision of you being that, you know, being able to, in that, be able to be in that position as a, as a writer, as an artist. Um, so I need you to do something practical, just, you know, because that, that, that was the story she knew. That was the vision she had. 
um, it's funny because it wasn't until I started writing for the star (laughs) that she's just like, wait a second, my son's a writer. Interesting. And and so that's when that's when it sort of started to switch. So I was like, okay, okay. A thought a thought just occurred to me on this topic. It's like you know, there's you know the expression you know, all things are happening on God's time, Mm -hmm. or some would say all all things are happening in uh, ordained time. it's you know you you have a relationship with Marvel right now and mm-hmm. Disney right and mm-hmm. so I think about um, how um, the 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 massive mainstream success that has been Black Panther mm-hmm. and, and and so I, well, I guess I guess I, I guess I start to think that well maybe maybe this this is how all happening at the right time you right. know you know what I mean because oh, yeah. and I'm I know I'm sure you've been asked before you know if 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 you had if you had released um, "Pimp My Airship" or "Sweep of Stars" twenty years prior, it's pr- it's the the culture had not or right. mass culture had not moved there yet. Right, there, right, right. Well, I mean, even uh, even Usual Suspects, really, because uh, I, I wrote Usual Suspects back in like two thousand twelve. Okay, and uh, and that book was dead on arrival because there was no market for that. Uh, oh. But me and my agent, we had some we had confidence in it, so you know. Actually, we got distracted for a while just due to life stuff that popped up. And so then we got back together and like, all right, so let's push it out now. Yeah. Um, but a couple of years had passed since, since, we, since I originally wrote it. And th- but then by that point, culture had shifted. So like the We Need Diverse Books movement had started. And so now suddenly people are like, oh, hey, we're scrambling for content. Da, da, da. And it's like, oh, by the way, there's this detective <laughs> my novel. body of work. Right, right exactly. Yeah, yeah right. Here's right my here. 30-year body of work. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm so, still here. Been here the whole time. <laughs> been here the whole time. Um, fascinating um and uh uh so um i mean of course you know an hour plus has just flown by i probably have to have a part two i i was just thinking about this maybe this is in your meditation it's like you're making art you're making you're you're telling stories about why art shouldn't be commodified and then you've got to do but yet you have to right. to make a living you've mm-hmm. got to be in the market right just kind of a i bet i know I, I suspect that's the case for you know many artists for, for many and so the hard part is how do you stay principled while doing it how do you stay true to who you are and what you want to do while doing it so that so part of that means there's some projects i've turned down along the way going yeah i mean i get it it's a commercial project but no that will take me off the path that I think I should be on. So right now it looks like me saying no to quite a few things. <laughs> I, so I have to share, um, and you've been incredibly generous, so thank you. I have to, so I have to share how reading this book at this time really inspired me specifically, in, in, including like opening me, opening me up to this whole world that makes me excited for the, the next one, the next book. Um, and, and thank you for sharing today. It's like, I just I need to get over myself. So for many for many years, I kind of kept my musical life over here, and then my work life. You know, working in kind of chamber, and um, okay. I want I definitely won't work in politics forever. At some point, I, I need to move on for my mental health. But um, but totally separate. Mm-hmm. And now and now I'm like I see how you draw on all these references from your um, your teaching and your uh, community work with Kepra, and you put them right in the book. Mm-hmm. And and so my my my. What I what I read is like it's to me. My I'd say to myself, get over yourself. You know what I mean. I'm sure there's a way I can um, allow whatever maybe frustration in my day job. I can just let that fuel, you know, creativity. Is that right? So, well, so I look at the beginning of my career, and uh, you know, I was you know back then. You know, I was a scientist. I was helping plant a church. I'm you know I'm trying to do a full time writer. You know, and I had those three pushes and pulls in my life as three separate areas. And, uh, and then eventually, my life collapsed. It just, everything collapsed on, on you know, it, you know, 
almost lost my marriage. I mean, it was just yep. it was a complete total collapse. Yeah. Uh, and so once in in the wreckage of all of that, um, there actually is opportunity because it's like, all right, everything I've defined myself by is now gone. Who do I want to be moving forward? What do I want to be doing moving forward? And so that's when I began putting my life back together. But now it looks different. So rather, so I'm still just as busy in a lot of ways. But you know, I still have the three, you know, three different jobs. Well, the, the writing's still the same. But now instead of three th- different areas, I have three that stack on top of each other. Um, and so the, the so the writing, so the school wants me to prioritize my writing. At Kepper, they want me to prioritize my writing because the writing fuels both of those. Yeah. And so now I've you know I've, I have a stack of three that fit nicely within one another. Um, and my life is a lot more ordered, and so you know, it's, so I'm now able to be a better husband and a better father yeah. Yeah. and a better friend. And, and and that that my mind's blown there. Just instead of like the separate the the, the stack the the integration and and the other thing that um and, and thank you for sharing today. And I, I'm again uh, I want I'm going to bring it back to you in a minute, but I just want to share how it's impacted me. Is you're and you're saying. And and it sounds like you give young also um, you know students this advice too. You're like the 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 creative work is not self indulgent isolation work. It opens you up. It it can or at least the way that you've pursued it, it actually opens you up to community. It does the opposite, right? Um, so you know what, what what am I doing on my page? I am opening my I'm opening up myself personally. I'm I'm completely vulnerable in my writing. I'm as vulnerable as I can be in my writing because. Even like I was saying about being hyper spe- uh, specific in, in my criticism, I'm hyper personal. I'm like I'm just trying to be as raw as possible at all time, open, opening myself up, because that's how connection is made, right? That that transparency, that that, that vulnerability, that that's how connections are made. If you and I are together and I'm I'm open and vulnerable with me, you're gonna you're gonna see that you're gonna see that oh he's entrusting me in this moment. Yes. Uh, so so yeah. So I, I want to do all of that. So I, I think it's probably my last question because I've imposed more on more of your time than I intended to. I can totally see Sweep of Stars as a feature film. Does that ever enter your mind? Like I can, I can like see specific actors playing yeah. the characters. There's been a there's been some interest. Okay, okay. I, I can say that much. Okay, okay. Um, but but okay. yes, okay. I, yes, yeah. I, I too. I, I, yeah. Um, if nothing else, because you know we, we're in this moment, uh, you know, as, as much as uh, Afrofuturism has been bubbling in the, uh, in, the, in the cultural consciousness and everything, no one's been able to replicate that. Uh, they, they, we've had Black Panther, and then on, on the side we've had like you know Watchmen or uh, Lovecraft Country, but that's been about as close to anything we've seen since then that's bubbled up like that. So we're still primed for that kind of content. Yeah. Um, well. Um Couple of closing questions. How can um, where if someone is if someone um, has read about you or maybe hears this and they want an introduction to Maurice Broadus, where would you recommend they start? It might be a loaded question, but it, it might be. But uh, I would probably at this point I'd probably recommend you yeah, start with Sweep of Stars. Okay, it, it's it's a lot, but yeah. that, yeah. that that is it. Because normally I would say probably maybe Pip Meyership, um, or if or if genre is not your thing, I would start with Usual Suspects. Okay. But for for me personally, I'm just like, yeah, I'll, I'll go sweep the stars. And um, in addition to two more books in the Astro Black trilogy, Sweep the Stars being the first, um, 
any, I would never ask anything confidential, but are there any, any projects that we can kind of look out for that would mm-hmm. be interesting? I have my second middle grade novel coming out in about three weeks. Okay. It's called Unfatable. Is it in Usual Suspects' world? It or? is in, in their world, but different cast of characters. Okay. Um, it's a, about a young lady who uh, is trying to get a, her, her, her art project started and uh, ends up encountering obstacles in, in the city. And so it's like, what does it look like for a young person to try and navigate these political waters all of a sudden? Uh, of uh, uh, and ends up uncovering all these mysteries within the neighborhood. So on, on terms of how things get done. Okay. So, but trying to navigate that as a young person. That's exciting. <laughs> and then I know there's, you know, Disney and Marvel and all this other <laughs> stuff. We have time to talk. I, I um, and again, to anybody listening, you ever had a chance to, to um, uh, hear Maurice speak? Um, d- highly recommend it. Um, You've been really generous. Anything else that, that we haven't talked about that uh, you oh, want to mention? Let's see. So, yeah, so Unfatable is coming out, and then I I think I have like a dozen short stories coming out over the next few months. As a collection? Nope. Okay. Just individual short story. I have another story coming out, and we actually just, just came out uh, this week. Another story in Weird Tales, for example. Oh, great. Um, I have an Aliens versus Predator uh, short story that just came out. You know, cool. So all this stuff is just rolling out here right now. And so. by following your site and you on social media, right. people can find yep. out when these come find, out. Find it okay. all there. Well, I, Maurice, I just want to thank you for, you know, again, pr- uh, producing the first book of this really expansive story. You've described it as Black Panther meets The Expanse. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Absolutely. So, so Absolutely. Which, which, uh, it, it, so I'm not as familiar with The Expanse, but uh, please check it out. And, and again, and just thank you for... Um, sharing too a lot about um kind of your uh, uh story and your philosophy it's it's very inspiring to me and i know uh, to a lot of other people through your contacts in the community and at kepra so thanks for taking the time so welcome thanks for having me thanks, thanks.